out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the singer, bass player and songwriter Steve Almas, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, all that other groovy stuff, was a member of the Suicide Commandos, also um, Beat Rodeo, and has gone on to a solo career as well, which you can find, and I'll put in the notes below. So this is an interview with Steve that I did recently. So after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative year. Steve, it's over to you. I'm of, I'm of that generation where... Um, I saw the, I was seven years old and saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. And that completely, twice in my life, one positive and one negative, the world completely changed from one place to another. And that was the first one. And that was very positive. But the world was one way the day before. And the world was a completely different place the day after. And uh, it was, I mean, you know, there were, there's many just like me, but you saw that and it was the greatest looking and sounding thing you had ever heard in your life, you know? And, uh, you know, so much came out of the Beatles, like for that. And I mean, even that, like all their cover songs that they played, you know, they were Beatles songs to us, you know, like Americans didn't know their own, you know, R&B white Americans didn't know their own R&B music and so you know please Mr. Postman was a Beatles song Roll Over Beethoven was a Beatles song yes. you really got a hold on me was a Beatles song and yeah. and then you know that opened you up to a lot of things later you would come you'd want to like find out oh they didn't write this where did this come from and you'd search that music out and it was yeah it was it it was a pretty big deal. Did the Rolling Stones also have a, a sort of a big kind of impact in the sense of them coming along and also covering, you know, their early materials all covers virtually, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, the, Ro- the Rolling Stones were very, very popular too. And I was never one of... I, I didn't actually know too many people that... I always hear now about the rivalry between the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, but... I loved them both, you know, and didn't really see any conflict in that. But yes. I would say, you know, the Beatles are just uh, on a level that other mere mortals didn't exactly, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, achieve. And I love the Rolling Stones and love the Kinks and the Who and all of the British Invasion bands and all of that music was my first music you know yes. did you did you ever get into those other kind of more soft pop or polished pop like the Herm, herman's herman's hermits yes yes they were very you know i had a great um i when my daughter was small um her mother was swiss and she came back from a spending like a month in switzerland and so she woke up really early and we were visiting in minnesota and so we went out to the Minnesota State Fair at like seven in the morning and we were like walking around up there and at like nine o'clock in the morning, nine o'clock in the morning, there was this band show and there was Peter Noon was performing Excellent. at nine o'clock in the morning at the Minnesota State Fair. And you know what? He killed it. He was great. He <laughs> sounded great. He looked great. 
he told like Davy Jones jokes and stuff. It, it was really good. Nice. So, yes, I was a Hermits fan too. I know there was just, and there was, I know people like the Dave Clark Five, who was, you know, I think he was probably the most sussed businessman in, in the world, actually. I think somehow he knew what, what he was doing, unlike everybody else in the music trade who got completely ruined. So were you... Oh, go ahead. No, I said, uh, did you, were your parents at all kind of interested in music? Because they'd obviously... My, were... my f- mother was a classical music enthusiast and played the piano. And my father, my father was Norwegian and he uh, I came from Norway as an adult to Minnesota. So um, he was a folk music enthusiast and, you know, strummed a few chords on the guitar and bought a lot of like folk and country records right so you know i did get that influence from him like of i mean he first like played me bob dylan and uh you know uh that's that's quite a cool that's a cool family isn't it really uh, a lot of good stuff that i heard you know pete seeger and the weavers and uh i mean he brought home the that Will the Circle Be Unbroken album with the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and all those, you know, country guys that I didn't know and stuff. And so, yeah, I heard a lot. I I was really into all the top 40, all the radio music of the 60s, but then I heard that whole other side from him too. Yes. Really like... You must have been sort of looking and seeing and experienced that kind of the change during the 60s, you know, because there wasn't pop culture before, say, 63, really, was there? There'd been the sort of... Yeah, for us, I would say 64, and then it really blossomed in 65. Yes. I was a little little kid, but I was really paying attention, you know, from like seven, eight years old. So, I mean, those are like experiences... uh, I mean, imagine like hearing like those cellos and uh, good vibrations like coming out of a transistor radio. I mean, I remember just thinking like what an amazing sound that was and stuff. And or positively, Fourth Street is like a top forty hit. Yes, like a, what a weird song to be like a top forty hit. You know, it was great. It was and so many things like that. That uh, pop music, you know, and then and then it was all mixed up, you know, with. Frank Sinatra was having top 40 hits too, you know? Yes, Elvis was having his comeback as well, wasn't he, at that stage? So that was was kind of interesting. I mean, there was, I suppose, you know, because I missed it because I was born in 64, but I was often thinking what it must have been like to see things changing so rapidly each kind of year and then sort of sounds that we'd never heard before. I remember people, we had a DJ here called John Peel who did a a show on the pirate station called The Perfume Garden. and, And, you know, suddenly my God, Jimi Hendrix, you know, listen to this guitar, you know, and you'd had Eric Clapton and Cream and you'd had Peter Green from Fleetwood Mac and John Mayles' Blues Explosion. And, but, you know, suddenly Hendrix must have just been like, okay, this is, and, you know, and obviously Pete Townsend seeing him at the Monterey Pop Festival. I mean, seeing all that happening so quickly, I just could imagine, you know, can only imagine it must have felt quite mind-blown really. Yeah, I was the first kind of real rock concert I went to was The Who in 1969. I was 13 and they played in a 14 400 seat little theater in the round in Minneapolis called the Guthrie Theater. And it, it still might be the loudest concert I ever went to. <laughs> yes, my god, that must it have was, been quite 
And that's when they all had good knees and elbows and still oh, absolutely. Yeah, it was like I think basically like they played that live at Leeds set, you know, that came out on that record and uh, it was really good. So in so the next year, no, that year, there was Woodstock, wasn't there? Were you as a as a literally as a teenager, thirteen, were you kind of aware of this kind of kind of the youth movement there was the sort of the, obviously the vietnam war you had you know civil rights gay rights you had people trying to get to the moon they might have already got there um but you know they must you know were you kind of aware like absolutely and too and to much to my frustration too young to quite get there i heard of woodstock they had something else that was much closer to me uh in 1969 was the ann arbor blues and jazz festival right. and I wanted to go to that so bad, you know, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, near Detroit. But there was no way. I mean, there was nobody, to, nobody, no, nobody that was old enough wanted to take 13-year-old me along to no, that. No, it just not going to happen. But uh, yes, aware of those things and really. But then like in 1970, like uh, a venue opened up in Minneapolis called The Depot which is the place is still a venue called First Avenue that's pretty well known for like 40 years or something. But I started seeing bands there in like 1970, John Lee Hooker and Canned Heat, the Ike and Tina Turner Review, the Flying Burrito Brothers and the Mothers of Invention, uh, Johnny Winters and Jay Giles, like all these shows, they would have them on Sunday nights. And uh, it was, those were all, they couldn't serve liquor in Minnesota on Sunday. So they were all ages. And, you know, I could get my dad to drive us down to the early shows for that. So that I started getting to see some really good stuff. Yes. And what sort of tapped you or nudged you in the world that was the bass guitar? Was there a a kind of a, 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 you know, anything? Well, you know, we had a little basement band and it was three of us playing guitars and I had an acoustic guitar with a, a pickup in it to use it, you know, which wasn't that cool. The other two guys had proper electric guitars. And then there was an older brother band that also practiced in the same basement. And their bass player got a new bass. And so he was willing to sell the old one. So by default, because it was an electric instrument, I moved over to bass. And that's how I started playing. Yes. Did he give you some lessons? Not really. And it's funny, you know, be, um, bass playing was really uh, confusing to me because the bass players I liked were like John Entwistle, Paul McCartney, um, la- a little bit later, Barry Oakley, the bass player in uh, the Allman Brothers Band, and uh, that guy in Yes, too, Chris Squ- But anyway, all these really busy... They were busy bass players and it was, that was kind of hard to learn from, you know, and it, but that's kind of what, or Jack Bruce, you know, or, uh, yes, I mean, it was a little, uh, it's funny when I was much older and like met some older players that, uh, you know, kind of were more, you know, like the, the bass might play with the bass drum and showed me about that. That was quite enlightening (laughs) because when I started out, I was pretty trying to be pretty busy on that bass. 
Yes, because because I've done a, quite a few interviews with bass players. Like there's a guy called Barry Adamson who was in Magazine, which was one of those post-punk bands, and also Jar Wobble who was in Public Image Limited. And and both of them, I think, just kind of picked up the bass for various. I don't know why they weren't really they hadn't played. It was almost like oh, have a go at this. And I think with their musical limitations, seemed to just go for a sound which was kind of very dub. You know, it's quite a dub sound because they mm-hmm. weren't going to be going up and down the fretboard and sort of doing anything like John Entwistle used to always watch that little clip of him just, you know, doing things that made you just oh, think, wow. it was sick when he could do that. Nobody plays like that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the um, arms. Yes, it was, it was something, but there was a musicality in those days. I mean, people would judge with their kind of ability to do very complicated thing and bend strings and uh, yeah. I mean, and then obviously in the seventies when you were, you know, must have been very aware of that kind of rise of the kind of the prog rock guitarist and um you know yeah those, that was a little it was a frustrating time it was and it was right after that when i left school and is i met the other two guys that were in that would be the suicide commandos and they were two years older than me which was a lot at that time you know and they knew a lot they knew just knew a lot more about music than I did. And I started playing with them and, um, you know, the, the drummer had been to, to England and he came back with John Cale and Roxy music and ducks deluxe and these, uh, you know, some of the, uh, Dr. Feelgood, some of the pub rock bands and that stuff too. And that's the music that we started filling you know you had you had to play in bars you had to play four sets and so we started filling our sets with like songs from the from those records you know and uh as we uh chris the guitar player was already writing songs and you know but that's where we kind of in our own little corner of the world there, you know, started moving towards what became the punk rock sound. Yes. Well, those, yes. God, that was a really interesting sort of, um, yeah, a, a moment to, because it's, yeah, because I was, you know, I've been listening to your you know, music quite a bit recently and um, it, yeah, it had that flavor, but I was a bit confused where that would have come from. But now you've just explained it. Like, oh, of course. Well, and then just another very random thing. I moved, uh, into the basement of a school teacher's house in down in Minneapolis. And it turns out her daughter had run off to New York with Johnny Thunders when the New York Dolls came and played in Minneapolis. And by the time I met her mother, she was living with Tommy Ramon. Right. And uh, she's sending her mom like pictures and cassettes and stuff of the Ramones music and the pictures of Blondie and the Ramones and all television and all those people. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, this looks like the greatest thing ever. We should go out there. And Mm -hmm. we called up CBGBs in the spring of 1976 from Minneapolis and said, can we come and play out there? And they, you know, it was like a local bar. They, they couldn't believe that somebody from Minnesota wanted to come and play, but they said, sure. (laughs) <laughs> and then that started us going out there and kind of getting tapped into that the New York scene and meeting those people and what they're doing and that's you know all started the Modern Lovers record came out that was a huge influence and uh 
television, I suppose. Yeah. <clears throat> yes, it must have all exploded. Did before that, you know, because in in this country we had obviously glam rock, as I kind of mentioned earlier, and, and most of it is kind of like just normal rock bands, but with men dressed up in sort of kind of flamboyant clothes. And then you had people like David Bowie. and Yeah, Rocks Bowie music. was big in my circle. People before punk, Bowie, Iggy and the Stooges, the Raw Power album, and the first New York Dolls record were kind of the three, the big three. And sort of amongst the people I knew lumped in with that would probably be Alice Cooper. Although uh, now, I would, now I wouldn't really call his music in the same league as those other people I mentioned no but, but <laughs> at the time he was kind of the you know in the same thought of as in in the same bunch yeah but yeah Bowie was the most impressive of and had those kind of other kind of garage punk bands that all went on the Nuggets compilations like Blue Cheer had they sort of come into your consciousness well that album that Lenny Kay put together Nuggets it came out in that yes that was a, I mean, that was just like a bonk on the head of remembering all this music that we loved from the mid sixties. And it kind of, and you know, then all of a sudden you could forget about Wishbone Ash and the Climax Blues Band, you know, and kind of concentrate on that. And that, you know, our style of punk rock definitely came out of the, partly out of the garage band sound for sure. Yes, absolutely. And when you when you were there in sort of um, 76, were you able to sort of get signed to a label quite quickly at that point? Well, no. I mean, it. well, in, I guess in the scheme of things, it, it, time didn't move as quickly then, but we made our own, you know, we made two independent singles that we just recorded and had pressed up and put out in, 76 and 77 and then we met uh the filmmaker chuck statler had moved from akron ohio to minneapolis and he was friends with devo and had made those early devo videos and he made a little film for the suicide i guess they weren't videos and they were little films and he made a film of the suicide commandos we had a rehearsal house that got condemned and the fire department was going to burn it down. And so Chris, the guitar player, wrote a song called Burn It Down. And we stood and we recorded the song and then stood in front of the burning house and mimed the song as Chuck filmed it. And then through, through, that, through, that Cle- through that Ohio connection, he put us in touch with Perubu. And they took us under their wing and we, we went and played with them and Cleveland they were very good to us and very supportive and uh through them we met the people at Mercury Records that were starting the blank record label and Perubu and Suicide Commandos were the first two signings to that label and I think we were in fact we were the only two bands to have an album come out on that label yes absolutely so yeah we started in the fall of my long-winded answer to your question is we started in the fall of 75 and by the, by the winter of seven, 77 going into 78, we had a record deal. Yes. But then, then you... we were, then we were done by November of 78. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh. when, you, when you brought out, make a record, um, when you went to record that, what was the sort of the band, what sort of situation condition were the band in at that stage? 
very popular in Minneapolis. We had a regular club, the Longhorn, to play in. And we played all the time. And there was a huge gang of people that would come to every show and dance like crazy. And it was a real scene. And so we were, uh, you know, when we made that record, we were firing on all cylinders. We made that record in a very good studio, but we were novices. And so were the, so was the engineer and the producer. So it's not the most, uh, it's pretty lo-fi. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Because doing this, this show for quite a few years now, especially the 80s bands, there was a, there's kind of an interesting narrative of, you know, there's the five year, you know, they get together, they have that bit of honeymoon practicing quite a lot for the first 12 months and then get a single, which John Peel, this DJ, would sort of often give a spin to, which kind of gave people a John Peel session at the great, you know, BBC studios. And then there would be the first album, things are going well. And then the slightly tricky period where they do the second album, which often they haven't got the material or, you know, the dynamics of the band are changing. And then if they have got to the third album, it's often slightly over. But that's, that is a bit simplistic, but I didn't, I have noticed that. And also with a lot of English, British bands, if they ever tour America, that always seems to completely finish them off because they just went, we came back and broke up. We just kind of finished us off. So with, with your band, you would sort of, it was very intense up to the sort of late yeah, 70s. Yeah, we kind of burnt out, I would say, in a way. You know, just that we did what we were set out to do. I was really interested in moving to New York City. The other two band members were not. And it just, you know, it reached a point quickly where we'd done what we could do. And they're just really, you know, I, the neck, we broke up in the, we played our last shows in November of 1978. And by the summer of 79, I was living in New York. Yes. And, it, and, yeah. at, that, and at that stage, I mean, New York's got quite a sort of reputation, hasn't it? Apart from being financially kind of bankrupt and, and sort of almost left to the rats. But there was also the, you know, the horrendous kind of drug scene and, and sort of a lot of people sort of struggling with that side of things because everyone obviously didn't realise the damage it was going to take. I mean, how were you sort of navigating the great New York kind of scene at that stage? Well, you know, I was, you know, out of, out of no... Uh, like nobility or anything on my part for whatever reason. Uh, I, I certainly wasn't averse to drugs and alcohol, but I always had something that was more important to me, like music. <laughs> yes. And so it didn't, uh, it didn't really get in the way of that for me. And uh, there was, you know, the eighties in New York up to like 86 from 1979 to like 86 or 87 was just a golden time to be in a band in New York because there were so many good places to play and they paid good money because um, college kids could get into the clubs. You only had to be 18 or 19 to drink. And so all the kids from, you know, Long Island and New Jersey and everywhere would pour into Manhattan and then they'd pour into these clubs and they needed bands. You know, they needed lots of bands to make all this music. And then they changed the drinking age to 21 and figured out they could pay DJs a lot less than they had to pay the bands. And yes. that 
it kind of changed everything then. But there were from like 79 to 86, 87, it was just a great time to be in a band in New York. Why did they change the drinking age? Because I'd sort of heard about that and I just thought, my God. Well, I guess there were too many teenagers driving drunk was probably what they felt like, you know. Yes, that's quite, a, that's quite a big thing though, isn't it? To sort of suddenly put the, you know, age up by yeah, three well, years. I mean, I think people get in the car here more than maybe they do in Europe, right? Yes, possibly. There you go. Yeah, and also, I mean, because there was not just CBGBs, there was the, the Maxis Kansas City, the Mud yeah. Club, Danceteria, and then there was the whole folk scene because I know that people like Suzanne Vega and Lucy Kaplansky and Sean Colvin, they were all part of that other scene that uh, was trying yeah. to make it, you know, in Steve small. Forbert, uh, and, uh, but yeah, there was Hurrahs and Danceteria and Peppermint Lounge and Tier 3. Um, yeah, just a lot. The, the Lone Star. There was a lot of good clubs. Yes. But then what was your next musical adventure? That, that well, I thrashed around for a few years. That I came to New York with a, a band I'd put together called The Crackers. And that lasted about a year. But, you know, with my Suicide Commandos credentials, we were able to start playing some good gigs pretty much right away. And then... Uh, that did not last, though, either. Oh, you've slightly frozen. Just oh, God. Don't last. And uh, Can you hear me? Uh, yes, it was a little bit of a frozen moment, wasn't there? How annoying. Am I yes. back? You're back. Yes, you oh. are back. Yeah, so I with said, I, so with with that one, the crackers. You had a, you know it was a three piece, wasn't it? And was that based from people from Mi- Minneapolis? Because you had Karen as well, didn't you? Yes, that was for, those two were from Minneapolis, and then for a while, Mitch Easter. We met Mitch Easter, and he was in the band for a while. But then he decided to move back to North Carolina, and so we went down and made a, a little EP with him down there. That that was that turned out okay. And that's, is that Sir Crackers? on the is, yes. Wow. <laughs> Not that many people heard of that. But no, yes. but I, I've sort of, because Karen went on to be part of the, the band of Susans that we all, right. which got picked up in the UK quite a lot and became such a sort of a cult classic, really, didn't it? Yeah. You know, let's face it, you know, so there you go. But was that her first band that she was in? No, she was in an all-girl band in uh, Minnesota called Spitfire. Right. Never heard of them. Club band. No, they didn't make any records. Although she's got got a cut on the big hits from Mid-America record with the singer from Spitfire and her under the name The Wad. And it's, uh, I actually play bass on it. Right. um, That was, and that was a good song. Somebody, I think Soul Asylum or somebody covered it. It was a good song. Yes. So was it, was it the case then that you were definitely looking at music as a sort of, not just a hobby, but quite a career? Absolutely. Then, yes. So then, because cause the 80s, you know, in, in the UK anyway, we had, we'd had that sort of the punk, then post-punk, and then the world of indie pop started to, you know, to be part of the scene. And obviously there was the mainstream charts with people like Trevor Horn and that, 
you know, Duran Duran and Sade and Spandau Ballet. But then you had all the kind of the goth scene that started in the UK. Well, we had a goth scene and sort of psychobilly and anarcho-punk. And then obviously the Smiths came along in 83. So it's probably a little bit different in, in America. But what was what were your, you know, you must have been. Well, sort of- I drifted towards having this band beat rodeo that, you know, went through. It was always this guitar player, Bill Shunk, and then various other members came and went. And we got a record deal in Germany first. And we went over and played in Germany and Austria and Switzerland. And that led to a record deal in the States with IRS. Uh, you know, the label R.E.M. and the Go-Go's. And yes, old did Mitch Kirk Copeland. He must have loved you. Yeah. And He's got a book out this year. I got to read. I will read that book. I will read too. Uh, I did an interview with him. He's such a nice guy. And he actually managed Wishbone Ash. You mentioned him earlier. (laughs) He's got some great stories, by the way. Um, Sure. (laughs) So we, you know, I think people would have called our music then like college rock, meaning that we got played on the college radio stations. You know, there were college radio charts then they probably which i guess was probably the sort of u.s equivalent to the in like indie you know they they didn't really call it indie here it would yeah be like college the the indie they like the british indie bands would be on the college radio chart yeah and 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 the american college thing though we didn't kind of understand it but we probably nodded and pretended but then slowly you realize this is where all the alternative stuff so you'd get bands like green on red or Ten Thousand maniacs or yeah. jason and the scorchers and you know they might be giant giants so that's camper van beethoven all those would have been college radio i guess yeah yeah exactly so with people like Green on Red, you know, and, and they had that slightly organic kind of sound. Were you look? Was there quite a scene that picked up on that? Because I did, God, I did an interview recently with somebody who he was. I think he was a producer actually. He'd worked with Suzanne Vega, but he was saying that in the seventies he'd spent most of his time kind of doing kind of. He was in New York, but he did country and western. He said it was a big. <laughs> you could play country and western and make a living from it in New York, which I was amazed by. Maybe, but. There you go, true story. Well, Beat Rodeo, we were we were very tight with Rank and File, that band with the Kinman Brothers, and we were pretty tight with Jason and the Scorchers too, the Beat Farmers, we uh, Mojo Nixon, that was kind of uh, the Dell Lords. Well, that was kind of the crowd we were in. Yes, and. and that- uh, and at that stage, I mean, and also if you're from the UK, you know, I guess this could be the same with bands in, you know, with Europe as well. We get very excited at trying to discover a new band. And if they're from America, we just, you know, we automatically love it. So I'd imagine you would have got picked up quite a lot in, you know, people like Melody Maker and the NME and... and well, you know, we got a, The Germans liked us. The English were sort of indifferent. I don't know. <laughs> They loved Green on Red. They really yeah. you know, they went for Green and on Red. And the Long Riders. They loved the Long Riders too, God, right? We did love the Long Riders. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so how did that? How did your band sort of develop during the eighties? Then, you know, we we were like kings in New York, just living this great life, playing a few gigs, really good paying gigs a month, and living here. And then we got the record deal, and we went out, we toured, 
Our first record did pretty good. The second record kind of overshot uh, its goals. The band got dispirited then and broke up again too. You know, again, it's just like probably within a four or five year period, you know, and then it was, uh, that was that. Yes, but you worked with some fantastic producers, didn't you, at that stage? Richard Goderer, Don Dixon, Mitch Easter, uh, Scott, Scott Litt. Yeah, yeah. we work with good people. Amazing. I, I, I stand behind those records. I, I like them, you know. Well, actually, yeah, I know. I mean, we're filled of nostalgia sometimes, aren't we? But it does, you know, they do sound... I mean, it's kind of interesting. Your first band has that kind of real, you know, like you said, Dr. Feelgood. And, and there was another band called Nine Below Zero and Ducks Deluxe and anything on Stiff Records. Remember Stiff Records with sure, Dave? Sure. Yeah, that, that had that kind of kind of pub rock qu- punk quality, didn't it, really? So um, there you go. So when, why did the band finish then in the sort of the... the um, IRS dropped us after the second record. Uh, you know, we had a pretty good lawyer that negotiated our record deal, or so we thought. But the fact is, the amount of money that they would have had to pay us for a third album was more than they were prepared to pay. So that was that. No, and that kind of took the wind out of our sails. Yes, I would imagine so. So then. We at that stage in the UK. I mean, I I know I keep on about the UK, but I, I understand it better than the USA. But then by sort of the late eighties, you know, because you could you you probably realise that every the, the the way that every five years roughly there's a new wave of sixteen to eighteen year olds, and they kind of want their sound, don't they? And I sort of noticed that with in the UK, a lot of those bands that I loved from the sort of eighty three period by 87 were pretty getting pretty tired by their second or third albums and were splitting up. And then we had that kind of the ecstasy world started to appear and new drugs and everyone wanted to get very excited in clubs. I mean, not everybody was doing it, but there was definitely the right. We need the stone roses. We've got happy Mondays, the primal scream, soup dragons, all that kind of scene. And there was this, the orb started to appear. And then obviously you had the Seattle grunge scene and, and, you know, there was also various other shoegazing was kind of another thing that happened. So what was your kind of next musical step? Well, you know, I went for a good long time without, I would, I had a couple of very good uh, grabs at the brass ring that hadn't really, you know, taken me to the next level. So I was, I was kind of, after Beat Rodeo broke up, I got a, I got a solo album deal with uh, Rough Trade America and, and actually recorded an album. And then they, they folded before the album could come out. Is, so, this, um, is this East River, East, East River Blues? East River Blues, yeah. That's got a great cover. It's got a great sound. And that record sat in the can for a while. I started doing this local Monday night thing down in the East Village that got very, very popular. And uh, with a bu- the bunch of the different versions of Beat Rodeo guys playing in, and you know anybody that came through town would come and sit in with us. Everybody from Alex Chilton to David Johansson to Lucinda Williams to <laughs> even Mickey Dolans came once and. We had this very nice, just, we're just kind of living and not, not forgetting about a career for a while. 
But I had this album, and one night the Swedish fellow comes in to listen to the band, and I'm outside taking a break. And he walks up and he goes, hi, you know, my name's Ingmar Magnuson. Uh, what are you doing, like, record-wise these days? And I said, well, I have this record in the can. A nice thing about the Rough Trade thing folding, I did get to keep the record. Right. I, I didn't lose, you know, I didn't lose the record. I had the record. That was good. And uh, Ingram, he said, well, I'd like to hear it. And if I like it, I'd like to put it out. And so this guy from Borlänge, Sweden, this like working class town in Sweden, basically, I guess that was in like 92. He's been putting records out for me for the last, what, two, for the last 30 years. Oh, right. Is this Winsome, Lonesome? Lonesome, Lonesome Whippoorwill. A few of their records came out in the States on a label called Parasol as well. Right. But, but Ingemar has been putting them out all this time. And, you know, he put out the one I did this year, the Everywhere You've Been. And Yes. Uh, he he's he's been your um he's been my uh mentor yeah he, he has basically he's, he's kept my foot in the yeah i've kept he's kept my big toe in making me i never lost interest in making music but i stopped like trying to make a living at it yes well i think yes, this is where a lot of people realize that must be fantastic to have somebody who's almost like become a, a patron of the arts it so. is and you know the the record we did this year really felt like it was the culmination of something like the all the the gods were with us with this one and everything just I, I'm really, really happy with this album and I and do feel like it's sort of uh I got to put a little bit of everything I learned over the years into one album and it was this one, you know. Yes, well uh, yeah, I've been uh, also listening listen to the solo work. So was this an album that you were put into started writing during the wonderful world that was lockdown? <laughs> or or had you been writing it before? No, nah, it was written. Some of the songs were probably about half the songs were written right before the pandemic and the other half had been just kind of percolating the last three or four years before that. Yes. And, um, and also with this one, you've got a big kind of musical kind of band with you, haven't you? You, you bought yeah, in a I got lot. really good. I got really good people playing on there. The drummer is actually my soon to be son-in-law. My, uh, uh, he's a drummer named uh, TJ Mayani, who's a, He's a jazz drummer, but he plays with uh, Steve Gunn and a bunch of other people too. And uh, he all, uh, TJ brought Tony Mayant, Tony, um, sorry, I'm uh, having a senior moment here. Uh, Tony Garnier, Tony Garnier into the project because Tony plays stand up bass in TJ's jazz trio. Right. And, uh, so, yeah, we had Tony Garnier, you know, who's Bob Dylan's musical director playing stand up and uh, Mark Sidgwick, who was in uh, Holly and the Italians and a bunch of other things, too. And uh, John Grayboff, who was in Ryan Adams and the Cardinals and uh, Gary Lewis sings harmony on a song from the Jayhawks and uh, and uh, Rebecca Sagestad, who I met up in Be- up in Beacon, New York, who was quite the pop star in Norway. I was uh, surprised and delighted to discover she and another woman, fantastic woman, Daria Grace, uh, did a lot of the 
you know, heavy lifting on the background vocals. And uh, so, yeah, it was quite a group of people. Kenny yeah. Vaughn from Marty Stewart's band. And uh, yeah, it was, I just, you know, got a lot of my old pals to come in and play on it. And when, uh, when did you go into the studio to record it? Uh, let's see. I think we started in summer of 2019. Right. Yeah. Blimey. And, then, and did like, you know, bass, drums, and rhythm guitar, scratch vocals and stuff first. And then I would work on it with the various people that were called into the project. God, that must be, yeah, that, that must be a nice uh, kind of project to have started and then sort of had to sort of work through during this last yeah. 18 months, actually. Really good. Because it has been a bit tricky. But it does sound, it does sound amazing. And it's great that you've, you know, do, do you just find it's so much kind of more simple to be, a, you know, the musical drive or the musical kind of director to these things rather than trying to sort of figure out how to put a band, to, you know, together? Yes, it's been... I've got my sea legs for producing my own music. Yes, I can I feel really good about that. You know, especially when I have uh, Mitch Easter engineering and mixing. And uh, we also, we worked in a very good studio in Brooklyn, in New York, called Cowboy, Cowboy Technical Services, where the engineer, Mario Viella, really good engineer too. And yeah, I mean, if you're working with good people, they make you look good. They make they, you sound good. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But it must be funny to sort of know that the band that you, you, you were in in the mid-70s for those three years, is still you still get sort of, you know, quite a lot of publicity for as well, don't you? And sort of, Yeah, I'm, I'm playing a gig with them on New Year's Eve. Which is quite amazing, isn't it? And because <laughs> cause during the 80s, I suppose there was, you know, my obsession with music was kind of like you know obsessive really um yeah even Huskadoo was that band that I yeah. I sort of I sort of you know for a couple of years played constantly in that way that you do and went to try and see them at Glastonbury and Kilburn in London and went on to follow you know Bob Mould in various solo ones so you must have feel quite chuffed that you you know a lot of these people were influenced and had been inspired by you yeah it's great I I really admire Bob everything about the way he's you know comported himself in his career i think that's like a guy that there's a template for doing it right that guy did it right and you know he keeps making good good music you know i like you know being the age i am i still want to hear original music from my peers you know and uh luckily that's been a really good thing about you know, the internet world and all of that, that there is an audience of people of my generation that still want to hear original music from people of my generation. And that, you know, keeps a lot of us going. Yes, because you, you're slightly not unusual, but a lot of people that I've interviewed definitely had a break, you know, for quite a few years, well, decades, let's face it. You know, they've got on and done, you know, got jobs you know had to sort of do the family stuff and house stuff and kids stuff and then have come back to music quite recently and have have kind of not reformed the band but have sort of brought either a solo project or sort of various members that they've played with before and have started writing new material and their feeling from speaking to them is to keep it much more kind of low you know like 
you know, having a much more sort of limited release, whereas you're sort of, you've never stopped playing music and releasing material, have you? No, I, you know, I, it's really at the core of who I am. I just do it because I need to. <laughs> <laughs> which is, all, which is, even though, even though, you know, I work at such a slower level than, you know, I would if that was, I, you know, it would be great if I could get up every day and that's all I had to think about was music, but that's not how it is. And so I'm really comfortable with, you know, the timeline I'm on for, you know, it's it always just sits in the back of my mind, you know, of writing another song. And, and when I have 12 of them, I'll make another album. You know? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and that's where I'm blessed. I have somebody that will put one on. Put, put them out when I'm ready to make one too. I so. think I see. I think that's kind of such kind of genius, really, isn't it? Because I think that's the bit that's kind of gives everyone the frozen kind of like, oh, where do I go next, and what do I do, and you, you just want to do it, and then someone else take care of the admin. Let's face it. Yeah. When you did your two, you did two albums with Ali Smith, didn't you? I did. So what was that kind of um, yes musical sort we of? We were in a relationship together. And I adored Allie and we were on a vacation once and, you know, there was a guitar line and we started just kind of singing some songs for fun. And I thought it would be really great to uh, uh, just like make a record of duets. And, and then with, you know, from, I, I just, uh, I don't know. I, I guess I just, looked at that as sort of a musical gift I could give to her was to arrange that, to, to get that done, you know, and uh, especially the first one that was, that was really fun to make. It was a very pleasant record. And uh, you know, I, the covers we did, I really liked and she sang a couple of old songs of mine, which that was very pleasurable for me too, to hear somebody else sing them. And uh, the second record was not quite as uh happy because uh between the making and release of the record we broke up (laughs) (laughs) so that was a little more bittersweet but i like that record too yes which is yeah it's that's probably gives you great material for sort of future songs really and trailers and and the album trailer songs Mm is that one that you've got fond memories of because again that's kind of got a fantastic production sound and quality yeah, that was, you know, well, I have an Airstream trailer in my backyard with my little, my little home studio in, and uh, my home studio is very rudimentary, but what I can record, I can record keeper vocals, and I can record, like, keeper acoustic instruments, like an acoustic guitar, or like the ukulele, uh, the on part of the ukulele on the new record is was done out there and a, a lot of my vocals were done out there too and so uh, uh that record was kind of based around my i was messing around with guitar tunings and finger picking and stuff so a, a lot of the songs were based around that and done in that trailer so that's why we called that's why i called it trailer song yes and you've always had great album covers haven't you you know you've always done well the, i have some good people there too the photographer bobby fisher 
has taken a lot of photos of me over the years that have been used in this and that. He he did the cover for the trailer songs record and he took the portrait and kind of sketched out the idea for the cover for everywhere you've been too. But yeah, he's given me that better than real life look. Right? Yes, you know, it suits the music. Because I suppose what was quite interesting kind of recently, I've done quite a few interviews with, you know, people who um, I suppose have been sort of connected with the Suzanne Vega, you know, moment like, you know, we talked about singer songwriters earlier and, you know, just playing, you know, her acoustic guitar, then think, oh, we might do an album with, you know, Lenny Cave produced that one as well. Yeah. And, um, and suddenly it's like, oh my God, it, you know, we didn't sell like 10 or 20,000. It's kind of gone massive and you've become this star and then you do a follow-up and then a follow-up. And then, then, you know, obviously things start to trail off again. I mean, with your kind of musical kind of journey, has it sort of been quite interesting sort of looking back and seeing, you know, the rise and fall of these kind of moments? And I just wonder how you sort of navigate those kind of... Absolutely. It was, uh, you know, from Beat Rodeo uh, to those... The two records I did with Allie got really nice attention. Actually, the solo record called Kingo a while one before in the two thought in the nineties I couldn't get arrested. <laughs> no, no one wanted to know. But then in the two thousands I got nice response to that Kingo a while one record in those two records I did with Allie, and then uh, then this one this year you know we got a very good publicist for this record and. The attention I got for it, and I think maybe people being stuck at home in the pandemic in a weird way kind of helped that too because they needed something to listen to at home. And uh, we just did really well with this one I'm, on the level I'm working at, you know. <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, do, do you do you mind? I mean, you mentioned that you're going to be playing on New Year's Eve, I think, mm-hmm. isn't it, with um, your first band? But is it the case that you sort of take these albums out and sort of? Your back catalog. We, we did a lovely record release gig in Woodstock for Everywhere You've Been, where the core band came and played. Uh, John, the pedal steel and guitar player, lives in Santa Fe, and he came. And TJ, the drummer, came up from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And then everybody else was kind of in the Catskills area there. And we just had a fantastic gig. It was, it was bittersweet in that there was only one we were going to do a show with Gary Lewis that got canceled because of COVID, but uh, we might do some, you know, Gary's a friend and a supporter. We might do some shows with either the Jayhawks or Gary solo coming up and we'll pro- probably do a couple things around the Woodstock area. Yes. And what's your, I mean, after New Year's Eve, what have your plans for sort of 2022? Write some more songs. Get to get get the next album sort of write some more songs. There's I've been talking with Ingmar. We might do some kind of uh, retrospective release too. There's a couple of the records that he put out that were never released in the states, and I don't know what he has in mind. I would like to do sort of a pick tracks from all the records kind of compilation thing maybe like a double album that way, you know, CD double album that way, or uh, I don't know, but there'll probably be some sort of retrospective. And I want to, uh, if this pandemic ever really ends, 
there'll definitely be more live shows. Vibeka and Daria live pretty close to me and uh, they will be the, at the core of whatever live thing I'm doing next. You know, the, there'll be a lot of vocals. Yes. Has, has New York slightly come back to some sort of, not normality, but something that feels a bit more like this, this is going to be... A little, to me, it's a little grim right now. It's a little dirty and a little down at the heel. It's not... It's definitely doing better, but it's not back. Yes. Strange, isn't it? I don't it? think it'll be back, really, till the masks can come off. And I hope that's soon, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm completely lost about what, whether you're supposed to be wearing masks in the UK or not. I think people have just get. To be honest, the UK is slightly given up. You know, it's like just. Well, um, did you get a booster? Um, no, but I've just booked my booster for two weeks' time. So um, I think after you have the booster, you're pretty good. For I've heard of I've heard of plenty of people that have had the two vaccinations that got breakout COVID. But I haven't heard of anybody that's had the booster that got breakout COVID. Mm. And uh, like I work in a school full of 500 unvaccinated children. So I made sure I got that booster before uh, I went back into the building this year and knock on wood, so far so good. Well, that's uh, yes. If you manage to survive kids, and I think you're yeah, you're pretty good actually. It would be good anyway. Is if it if you were able to sort of give your you know like your sixteen eighteen year old self a little bit of kind of worldly advice. Is there anything that you would have you know with all the decades and all the different musical combos you've been in and albums? Is there anything that you would have just sort of whispered in their ear just to say, look, you might ignore this, but I'd just say that you know, this is worth remembering or worth doing or worth not doing? I think I would have paid more. I would have paid more attention to the business. Uh, part of like what I, you know, when I said I admire Bob Mould so much is like, I know he took care of himself that way always and uh, was in charge of get in, in charge of that. And I was not like that. And uh, I, there are, are various points where had I been a little bit more like that, you know, I don't know. I, I wouldn't have life be any different than it. Life is very good right now. Life is, and uh, I wouldn't want to do anything to make it not be like it is right now. So yes. is I, it, I can't. I mean, with, with the music business, is it the case then that it is just – it's just very complicated and you've really got to pay attention and know what to look out for. I mean, because everybody I speak to is going, oh God, you know, that side is just grim. But well, yeah, for me, it worked. There was a point where if you would have asked me, what are you trying to achieve? I would have said, I would like the success of somebody like Tom Petty. That, that guy made good records till the day he died. He was very popular, could always play big, had a huge audience, could play big shows, kept writing music, kept... That's another... Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, the way they operated their music and their everything, I really admire. And, you know, at the point where... There was a point where I just knew that was not the way it was going to go for me. And so 
I think it just needed to go the way it did. Yes. Were you disappointed? I'm, I'm good with that. I'm really, like I said, I made a record this year I'm really happy with and uh, hope to make another one. Yes, well, absolutely. I mean, actually, having gone through those two kind of three bands and then getting a solo career does sound like you've, you know, met, yeah, it's a good, it's a good place to be, isn't it? Where you can just take charge and think, you know, you're not having to negotiate with people and it's often quite hard work and then ends in tears often. But then you must, must have a nice relationship with your, you know, the first band, you know, Suicide Commandos. And you know what, if you get to wake up and think about music every day in this world, in your life, that's very lucky. This is very true, actually. Well, look, and that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. A massive thank you to Steve for giving me the time for that. And as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, he's been in quite a lot of bands, Beat Rodeo, The Suicide Commandos, and quite a few of other little combos. This has been a C86 show, David East. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just to... C86 show and you will find me somewhere lurking there. All these interviews have been archived so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. It's all true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.